listening to Stick to Wrestling until the hour's done. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Wednesday. We're recording on Wednesday, uh, February the 12th. Happy Social Media Day. My name is John McAdam, and I want to welcome you to the Stick to Wrestling podcast. Give us 60 minutes, and we will give you, perhaps indeed, a Raw Bone podcast. I have a question for everyone. Sure, there are some good wrestling podcasts out there. So there's some really good ones. But are any other wrestling podcasts wicked good? Tell you what, let's ask Joey Ramone. Oh, no, 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 no. Well, there it is. You cannot argue with Joey Ramone, literally. And with that, I would like to bring in my convivial co-host, the one and only Sean Goodwin. Sean, how are you today? Well, first of all, happy Valentine's Day to everybody, because I believe this is dropping on the 14th. Dr. McAdam, answering your questions of romance and love today. No, no. Um, <laughs> off to the Facebook page real quick, because I this is one of my favorite episodes. This is a this is a Sean gets a nice light lifting, easy day off here. You'll find out what I mean in a second. So if you still have enjoyed the uh, Stick to Wrestling Facebook page, you should. Because first thing we talk uh, about there is a lot of stuff we're going to talk about today. If you need to find out if Bob Backlund won 40 years ago, well, that's where you also would look. Uh, We've even had an extended conversation about who sold out the most buildings ever and who actually made invented the most buildings ever. And that went on for a long time. So all kinds of these just off-the-wall wrestling topics, never any arguments, a bunch of good guys. What are you waiting for? All right, let's talk about that for a minute. Who made evented the most buildings? Now, this means that Madison Square Garden and the Tokyo Dome count as much as like Jack Witchie Sports Arena or the Totowa Ice Arena. So, I mean, it's going to be a guy who was around forever and worked everywhere and was usually in the main event. So that would be the parameters I'd be looking at. The One of the guys I threw out was Mark Lewin, just because of the uh, extensive overseas work he's done. True. I'm thinking someone who, like, you know, did pretty much every territory, was on top wherever he went, maybe an Ivan Koloff? Yeah, Uncle Ivan's a good one. Here's one. Um, oh, what's his, uh, the Freebird, uh, Buddy Roberts. Mm, I'm going to say no, because Buddy, early in his career, was not the main event. I mean, for no. most of his career. Well, but when he was with the tag teams, he often was. Yeah, but like the Hollywood Blondes usually weren't like a, a the main event. So I, well, I don't think it's going to be Buddy Roberts. I don't know. I'm just thinking of guys who are like everywhere. But it'd be someone like him who worked in pretty much every territory, but higher up the card. Yeah. Jimmy Valiant's another one that might be there. Because supposedly he wrestled like every small town in, in the Carolinas and Virginias uh, in Virginia during the JCP era on top. See, I'm also thinking it has to be somebody from the 60s because that's when you're trying out different towns and the, the, the territories really haven't calcified completely yet. By the time you get to the 70s, you're running pretty much your, – your towns are pretty much set up. So I'm thinking maybe even someone – it could it probably end up being someone like Jim Londos. You know, I mean the guy sold out arenas in Greece. Yeah, I mean that's true, but you know, that's not like – I don't know, being out there – seven or eight times a week like a lot of these the guys were in the 70s and 80s. It's, it's Same towns, though. True. I mean, he didn't work the tank towns, though. Like, you got to no. work the big towns and the tank towns in order to get all of these arenas in. Well, yeah, but you also have to have a massive... Because my concern with getting somebody too new is the fact that if you're running the Memphis circuit, you're running the same towns over and over again. If you're doing Jim Londo's, you're bringing him in as an attraction. You're going to try to find as many different places to put him in as possible. So he would be running into more different places. It is a question without an answer, but it's an interesting conversation. And with that, let me let you guys in on something. I keep a list. Not only this is embarrassing. I keep a list of all of our guests for Stick to Wrestling. I also keep a list of the songs that I botch up to open the show so I don't repeat them. But I was going over the list of guests and I'm like, wait a minute. We haven't had this guy on in how long? Because he's really good. Mr. Bo James, welcome back. It has been too long, sir. Thanks for having me back. Always have fun talking about classic wrestling with you guys and i gotta throw in there my guess for the most main events and the most buildings would be luthes because 
in my research of Thez in Tennessee in the 60s, he was main eventing 300-seat buildings here in East Tennessee. Wow. He was, and he was campaigning so hard against those in his book. Or This is when he was not champion, though. No, he was yeah. champion. He, oh, defended, wow. he defended the title against Sam Steamboat at the VFW Hall in Greenville, Tennessee. And they oh, went an hour man. Broadway. Thez went nuts over over that in his book. He's like the world champion should not be his term should not be wrestling in tank towns. It should be like big cities every night. And I I don't know if I, I I'm not sure if I disagree with him or not. I mean, there was something to be said about like Bob Backlund coming to I don't know Portland, Maine, where you know the you're not going to see any other big sports star in a place like that. You know, I, I think that's why they sent him to these towns here because they knew they'd probably never get another world champion to go to Greenville <laughs> or go to Roan Mountain, Tennessee or, or Corinth, Mississippi or wherever else they were sending him here at the time. Because wow. these were some small, small towns. And, uh, it, and, you know, Buddy Rogers would not come. He was here before he was the world champion. He would not come back to East Tennessee after he got the world title. Because he didn't want 10% of the small towns because he made more money going to Charlotte or somewhere else. That totally makes sense, except if you're the NWA champion, you're supposed to go where they tell you to go. But anyway, we had a mailbag show, I want to say, three or four weeks ago. And one of the last things I said was we will have a show where we answer the remaining questions, the ones that we did not get to. We are going to tackle those questions and more in this episode of Stick to Wrestling. I am not shy about it. I absolutely love the mailbox shows because it gives me a week off of having to decide what to talk about. Plus, you guys come up with good questions. Before we get into that, can we talk about Tracy Smothers right here? We sure can, Bo. Definitely. It's on my notes. I skipped right over it. Please, the stage is yours, sir. Yeah, as many people know, Tracy Smothers is battling cancer. He's having a rough time. He, he's been in the hospital for almost two weeks. He got home as we record this. If you're out there, there's several benefit wrestling events going on for Tracy in the next few weeks. And we're, we're going to talk about one February 29th, Dunbar, West Virginia. It's a suburb of Charleston, the state capital. If you're up there in southern Ohio or eastern Kentucky or even east Tennessee, it's not that long of a trip. And everything that night's going to help Tracy. It's, it's going to be a great night. A lot of the boys that's known Tracy for many, many years are going to be on that card. But if you cannot make any of the towns, they have set up a GoFundMe to help Tracy out. And you can also go to ProWrestlingTees.com slash Tracy Smothers. Buy one of Tracy's shirts there. And if it's one shirt, if it's four shirts, if it's, you know, whatever, if it's a few dollars on the GoFundMe, every bit helps. And, and right now, Tracy's in the fight for his life, and he needs a little bit of help from anybody and give him a help up. And, and here's the deal. I know there's people listening to this that have met Tracy's mothers. I know there's people listening to this that are pro wrestlers that Tracy's mothers helped along the way. He's paid it forward for you. Give it back to him now. Yeah, you know, Bo, I'm actually going to ask you to do me a favor. 1994, I went to Smoky Mountain Wrestling Fan Week Convention, and there was a luncheon, and me and my friends were just sitting around, uh, you know, eating lunch, and Tracy came up to us and said hi. And he was the only one of the wrestlers that did that, and please tell him I said thank you for that act of kindness. He was a really good dude. I, I sure will. I, I talked to him every afternoon. Well, you know, some days he's not able to speak on the phone like today. He was resting. He was very weak. So we just text back and forth a couple of times. But I hope to speak to him tomorrow. But if I don't, I'll tell him in a text and I'll make sure that he knows that, John. Thank you, Bo. And yeah, with that, Sean, if you could uh, ask us the questions that our listeners have submitted in our Facebook group, if you want to potentially have a question answered, you know, and you're not part of the group, by all means, join. And one of the many benefits of the website, you get to be actually part of the show. One other thing is that the GoFundMe page and the Dunbar benefit that Bo just referenced will be on the website already by the time you hear this show. You got it. Um, oh, right. So, yep, absolutely. Uh, that will be part of the big market thing we do before the show. So our first question, and I'm going <laughs> to I do this, but I'm going to mess this one up. Uh, I've been saying this over my head. Kayan Vidati. I'm sorry. 
wrestler or wrestling personality you've met who was the biggest a hole. Now I'm just going to get this out of the way. I really I don't have anybody. Most of my uh, meetings was with ECW guys way back in the day, and they were all pretty cool back then. So uh, my that's pretty much my quick answer. I just want to get me out of the way because I know these two have answers. Bo, who's yours? Oh, uh, for many years myself, and it was something that I worked hard at. And my actual nickname to many of the boys that have known me for many years is the asshole. That's what they refer to me as. Now, my personal meeting someone that was Austin Idol, no doubt. Really? Tell us more. He just, I was around him when I was a kid, when he was working here for Ron Fuller, and I was helping put the rings up and stuff, and he just never was friendly. And I was around him one Saturday morning at Memphis TV, and he was not very friendly, and and you knew that. And maybe I just caught him on bad days, but... The fact that it happened multiple times, that may be it. All right. I'll give mine because this day just haven't, hasn't had enough sunshine. Um, we're going to divide this into two separate groups, okay? Someone you've heard of and someone that you probably haven't heard of. But the biggest asshole I've ever been around was a local guy named Superstar Richard Byrne. He was insufferable. He was just a... a uh, there was just no happiness about this guy. He was so sullen, so humorless. And I know that we have a mutual friend who listens to this show. Richard's no longer with us. And this person's listening right now, and he's going, well, Richard didn't like you either. And I get it. Hey, this was the 90s. I was a brash, young guy. I got it. No, not everyone liked me. But God damn it, I was fun to be around. I was. No questions asked. I cannot imagine someone liking being around Richard Byrne. I would rather be around the coronavirus. <laughs> the second one would be, and this is going to surprise some people, and like Bo said, I met this guy once, and maybe I caught him on the wrong day, and I may have caught him in the wrong part of his life, but I thought Bruno Sammartino was beyond cranky and just very uh, condescending. And again, let me underline, you know, this was right. It's probably smack in the middle of his problems with McMahon in 92. But Bruno was just not a lot of fun at that. Uh, the one time I met him. I met him in 99 at the Curtis Goes Home. And I actually ate with him that day. And he was such a a true gentleman and a joy to be around. Okay. Yeah, and you know, like I, like I said, I might have caught him on the wrong night. The same thing with Idol. Now, let's add to that question just a little bit more because you were talking about miserable people. I will tell you who the most miserable person I was ever around in the wrestling profession. And I thought a lot of the guy. I got along with him great. I liked working with him. And Towards the end of his life, during his health problems, I would keep up with him on Facebook. But one of the most miserable trips that I ever was on was from Memphis to Tunica, Mississippi, and back with Rex King. Wow. It, it was so bad. You know, back in... in back, Rex back, King. Back I was thinking the Moondog, like a complete <laughs> idiot. <laughs> no, I love the Moondog. I love to eat with King. Moon, moon dogs were straight up hillbillies. We got along great. <laughs> Rex, Rex King was at that point in his life. Should I stay in the business, get out of the business? Everybody's done me wrong. My wife has left this, that, you know, he had so much trouble. He was so miserable. And back then we all wore fanny packs and we all carried guns. And I reached in my fanny pack and I pulled my 32 out and I laid it on his leg. And I said, Rex, shoot me. Or shoot yourself. I cannot <laughs> take this for another 50 miles. <laughs> Rex King, let me put it to you this way. If Brian Hildebrand did not like you, you did something wrong. Brian Hildebrand couldn't stand that guy. Yeah. <laughs> and one other thing with Bruno, maybe it's just that I didn't catch him on a bad day. I was in a car with the fabulous Moolah. And I know the Moolah stories that are out there. But to me, she was a funny old broad. I liked her, okay? Yeah, same with me. All right. And she, I, Bruno's name came up, and Mula goes, oh, yeah, they love Bruno all over the world. They love Bruno, except for Pittsburgh. That's where they know him. 
So I guess I'm not alone. <laughs> well, do you think maybe Larry talked to him? I know you and Larry have a problem. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Go back to the archives, kids. There's a crazy story with me and, and Larry Zabisco. I'll, you know, I'll break that story out again, like in about three or four months, because it was, it was very funny, random encounter with a pro wrestler. But Sean, I mean. I'm not asking you this in, you know, a uh, uh, condescending manner. Like, you've never been around any of the guys, any of that? Not to the extent that you guys have. The time, mostly like the ECW in the early, early days, when you would be sharing a restroom. So you'd be in the urinal next to Sandy. Uh, so that would be my, you know, my discussions with you. So you'd see them like you would be sharing the locker room. Now, these guys were just so, you know, so new at this point that they were, you know, it was almost part of the business being nice. These were the guys who answered the, uh, you know, the phones when you called into order stuff. Uh-huh. You get Stevie Richards. So they were all kind of nice. They really didn't kind of get weird till later on. And I was gone by then. So I thankfully really have not had a bad incident. That's good. I mean, and most of my uh, deals with pro wrestlers have been positive. You know, if you're cool with them, they're cool back. I see this question asked on Facebook all the time, all the time, in all the different little groups that I'm in or just different people. But what wrestler this one? Here's what people forget. They're human beings also mm-hmm. who traveled 300 days a year away from their family. Rain, sleet, snow, tornadoes, hurricanes, didn't matter, make the town. Sick, broken bones, make the town. Yep. Concussions, make the town. Stitches, make the town. Eyes swelled shut. It doesn't matter. Make the town. So you're going to hit people at bad days, and you're going to hit people that are going to crack on you when they're on the road for lengths of time, and it's not natural to be 500 miles away tomorrow than you are right now. And that's why a lot of people don't survive in the business. You know, a lot of people get in it and they think, "Well, I could just wrestle right here and do this and that, and be successful." No, you got to get out there and go. So, I mean, it could just, you just hit people on the right days and on the wrong days. Yeah. And a lot of people don't realize that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I have seen like, you know, wrestlers trying to check into their hotel room and, you know, there's a crowd of people and it's like, you know, you just got off the plane for the hundredth day in a row and you just want to get to your room and you're not trying to be rude. You just, you know, Hey man, I'm tired and I can't sign for everybody. There's a wrestling fan. He lives right across the line in North Carolina from here. Great guy. And he hates Nick Bockwinkle with a passion to this day. And he hates Jerry Lawler to this day with a passion because he tried to get them to sign a program after they just wrestled an hour Broadway. <laughs> he jumped in the aisle with the pen and program and stuck it in their face. And they kept walking and he's still mad to this day. You know, that guy, he, he's an ass. He wouldn't sign my autograph. Uh-huh. And I said, I would have hit you in the nuts and just kept going. <laughs> I was going to say, he's lucky. I remember Nick told a story that he was talking to Ric Flair once, and Rick had told him he was at the AWA show, and I guess he was drunk or something, and he was about to jump out in front of him. And Nick's like, he, he told Nick, he's like, you never saw me. He goes, oh, no, don't worry about it. I would have saw you. I would have picked you up. I would have thrown you back into the stands. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, he's lucky that's all that happened to him. I, I just wanted to say, you never want to judge somebody on their worst day. Right. No. And like I said, these guys, they have to deal with, you know, autograph hounds, photo hounds every day of the year. And it, it can't be easy. They just can't accommodate everybody. So we'll go on to the next question. Jesus Salas Rodriguez, tell me a valet lady wrestler who could have been a much bigger force in the industry, but it didn't work out. Who do you think, Bo? Oh, man, I don't I don't know. My dear friend of many years, Sherry Martell, could have had a longer run and mistakes hurt her. But, you know, somebody I guess he's asking somebody that we thought should have got a break and never did. Well, I'll tell you who I was thinking was because you mentioned Sherry Martell and my answer was going to be Sherry that she was born too early, that when her prime hit the business and the business for women wasn't very good. If she was around when China was a star, she would have been a force of nature. Yeah. Huh, that's, that's a possibility. I have an answer. There was this wrestler around 85, 86, 87, maybe a little into 88. His name was Mike Golden. 
and he claimed to play football for Oklahoma. Maybe he did. I don't know. Um, and he had a valet named Fantasy. And obviously, this woman, this was a woman in his life. And she had just a rocking body band. I mean, especially for the 80s. Look out. Facially, she wasn't very pretty which I think works for her. I think that combination worked for her and she was solid behind the mic. I thought she was really good and she just, she just never got rolling. Another one who should have been way bigger was Nicola Roberts, AKA baby doll. Uh, she fell out of favor in the NWA. She went to bill Watts and she cut some really good promos on her own for bill Watts. And then, you know, Watts folded and where was she going to go from there? Yeah. I agree with that. I forgot all about Mike Golden's valet. That was in uh, for Jerry Blackwell in Georgia, I think. Uh, he was in Continental. He was in yeah, the she, Texas she wasn't, Star. She, she wasn't with him in Continental. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, yeah. I think I saw him on Blackwell or Jody's team. Whoever, whichever group he was working for out of Georgia, that's where I saw him. I forgot Southern all about her. Pro wrestling. Yeah, I, I forgot all about her. Yeah, it, it's easy to because she, you know, had a very quick run, but I, I thought she was fantastic. I actually, one who we're all going to know, but it's it's someone who I didn't think got the credit she deserved. Part of the reason, because of how they used her, was uh, an ECW Francine. And if you were not, because the way they, they really use her great on TV, you had to see her at the arena. The way she manipulated those crowds, especially as a heel, was a sight to behold. I believe it. She knew exactly what those guys, and she would just, I'm picturing like uh, someone told a story about Johnny Valentine one time coming to an arena, and he was a face this time for the first time in a while, and that he looked to one side of the arena, held up his arms, and you saw that one side alone stand, and then he turned around and did the other. Francine would do stuff like that, where she would like just look at one side, and that one side would stand up, and she would just mess with them. Oh, it was beautiful to watch. If they kind of pursued that side of her more than just the sex pot thing, I think she would have gone farther. Unfortunately, just got lost in the shuffle with the rest of them. Yeah. I mean, when ECW went down, I mean, you know, WWF and WCW was was going under anyway. I mean, there were a lot more bodies than there were lifeboats. Yeah. And if you take away that kind of her way of working an audience, she kind of just blends in with all the rest of the female valets around that time. And there were a lot. There, There were no shortage. No. Um, okay, Charles Devlin, you only had one of the classic territory TV shows to watch. What would you pick, Bo? Hmm. Normally, okay, is this something that exists or does not exist on tape? Uh, I, I'm taking it as either. Okay. It, it would it, exist it, on tape if you wanted it to. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> something that exists. I, my life work now has become Ron Fuller's territory of the research and all that. So probably continental because I have more of it than anybody out there. Uh, but something that does not exist that I wished I could see if it was just one episode would be the King sport territory, just to see how they did the TV back in the fifties and sixties here in, in the tri cities and to see Ron and Whitey in their prime. Oh Yeah. It would be so interesting from a whole bunch of different perspectives. I mean, just, you know, what everyone looked like back then. Yeah, you know, get to see Whitey Caldwell, but get to see what that television looked like. It would be, I would be fascinating. In 1999 or 2000, I went to the Channel 19, the TV station that I was on for years here, to drop off the tape that week. And programmer Fred Phelan happened to be standing in the lobby when I walked in. And he what big hello, always a great guy, still a great guy. And he says, man, you should have been here two or three days ago. We found some old wrestling reel to reel films down in the basement. And I said, they threw them in the trash. Oh, my God. Oh, I ran to the dumpster right then, but it had been picked up. It was empty. And he said there was a box. There was two or three one inch tapes. And the rest was reel-to-reel film. So that tells you how old the stuff was. Oh, my God. Uh, they can't just say, let's wait a couple of days. I think Bo should be here. Bro, no, this takes up way too much room. Crap. That's, I, I went nuts. I said, how could you have not held it? He goes, well, we don't have anything to play it on. We didn't figure anybody would. I would have found somebody. I was just saying. <laughs> if I had to build my own machine to play those, <laughs> I would have. I was going to say, that's your problem. Out. I'll um, take over. I'll take over a movie theater. 
<laughs> no, I will leave when you play this. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. If I had to pick one, and I put a lot of thought into this, Mid-South immediately jumped into my mind because that's my favorite promotion of all time, but you're only getting like 10 years. If you get everything that the Florida promotion put out, you've got like 40 years worth of stuff, and Florida was a phenomenal promotion, so that would be mine. If I could have every TV show ever produced by Championship Florida, I'm taking them. Uh, oh, this was I agonized over this. This was just, this was awful. I, I So some of the finalists, because I had to pick one, and I have to name some of these guys. I'm thinking like 74 Memphis, like 70s, and then I was thinking Gulf Coast, and as John said, Florida. And, you know, some of maybe like the Washington, D.C., uh, the old Ray Morgan stuff with the Grams. But I, I have my white whale now, my obsession with Ray Stevens in the early 60s. It would have to be Shire back in the early 60s. I, I have to see him. Who, who could have possibly been on those reels that were thrown out in Kingsport because he was here in the 50s twice? Oh, that. Oh, I know. I just every time I, I'll see like Ray. I have one uh, I, I posted on the way. Here's something you missed. I posted on the website once on the, the Facebook page of, Ray, I think, Ray. He would have been about 20 against Buddy Rogers in Ohio. Oh, God, get out of here. This was like 1959. Wow. Here's an even more loaded question about that. If you say one territory, if you were to say the Tennessee territory, uh-huh. imagine how big the video library would be. Nashville Studio, Memphis Studio, Chattanooga Studio, Knoxville Studio, Kingsport Studio, Huntsville Studio, Muscle Shoals Studio, Jonesboro Studio, Bowling Green, all had live TV in Johnson City. All had live TVs at one time. That's I believe crazy. I believe I believe Bowen's found a loophole. That's <laughs> <laughs> what you have to look for, man. I'm going with that. That gives, I'll go with that because that gives me my buddy, uh, gives me my Ray Stevens too, even earlier. Then I can get the Green Shadow too. They had so many live TVs here in the 60s and 70s that Birmingham TV was the last live TV to come on board. Do you know what time that TV was? No. Saturday nights at midnight. And when they were doing live TV. Live That's crazy. TV. You were was that Bill? Was that Bill Golden show? No, no, this was this was for Goulas Welch. Okay. You would do Chattanooga TV at 5. You had already been to two TVs that morning and afternoon. Chattanooga TV at 5, Chattanooga House Show at 8.30, Birmingham TV at midnight because you got an hour, the time change going into Alabama. Then you drive home to Nashville. I, you know, it was such a different time, too, because people tended not to stay up late during that time frame, you know, it was very, very much more an early to bed, early to rise society. Yeah. But apparently they did it enough to keep the thing going. Yeah. And they were doing huge business at the Boutwell on Monday. People stayed up to see what was going to happen. West Virginia, W-O-A-Y TV, the West Virginia territory that ran for 27 years. They did live TV Saturday nights at 1030 to midnight. Well, let me just jump in. Is that the show that we see the random YouTube show from the 70s? Yeah, that was after the territory was dead yeah. and the local the local guys had taken over. When the Madrids, Tootsmont opened the territory, and then the Madrids ended up, which was Gypsy Joe and Jan Madrid, they ended up owning the territory and did very good business for years. But Joe left to get out of there to go to another territory because he had had some kind of beef with Jan. And Janet got in some legal troubles and had to sell the territory to the local guys. So they stopped bringing in talent from the other territories. OAY TV did it. I think it's on YouTube also. They did a three-part news story of the history of that wrestling and that territory and who came through there. And it is a who's who of national stars. But they also, like East Tennessee, had their own local West Virginia stars that were the main stage. I think that news bit is out there too on YouTube. Yeah, I, I think it is. We shall seek it out. Yet another reason to join the Facebook group. <laughs> there you go. All right, Sean, you got more questions for us. Tony Prestopino, what are your memories of the first matches you went to live? Who was there? What was the main event? Things like that. Bo? Oh yeah. October, 1982. And this is maybe one of the all time stories for the stick to wrestling podcast. 
I do not have a moment where I discovered wrestling on TV. Wrestling was a constant on TV from birth. My grandparents, huge wrestling fans. My mom and dad were casual fans, but my granny and her sisters all loved wrestling. My cousin, Zach Murray, was a referee in the Knoxville Territory, the Gulas Territory in Charlotte, and he, he did also wrestle some preliminary. So as a kid, little kid, my granny would say, that, that referee right there, that's your cousin, Zach Murray. Wow. So we would see him on TV because he would either be in Mid-Atlantic or Knoxville, it seemed like. so. And then like when Blackjack bought Knoxville, he was on every week. We'd see him on both shows. So I was always a wrestling fan. At five years old, the kindergarten teacher that I had and that my nephew, Zach, we had the same kindergarten teacher. I was her first class. He was her last class of teaching kindergarten. And she told me, I went to show and tell for Zach one day. She told me, ever how many hundreds of kids, ever how many 20-whatever years it was that she taught school. I was the only kid that stood up at five years old in her class. And when she asked everybody the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? She said, I did not say that I want to be a wrestler. She said, I stood up at five years old and said, I'm going to be a pro wrestler. Nice. And all the, all the kids laughed. And I remember being laughed at. And funny thing about that, almost every kid in that class has bought a ticket to see me over the years and brought, their, and brought their kids to see me. So I started asking my dad when I was about six or seven years old, could you take me to the wrestling? Because Crockett was running Kingsport every three weeks. Knoxville was running Johnson City every week. Please, can you take me to, you're too little, you're too young. When you get older, when you get older. In 1982, my dad had a construction business building houses. And some days I would go with him. And I went with him one day and we were getting in the truck to leave for the day. And I had left a toy on the dirt pile. So I get out of the dirt pile. I'm eight years old. Go get the toy. But I come back and dad's getting on his side of the truck. He says, get in here. But I got out on the passenger side and I did not close the door good. I just pushed it up. It just barely latched. I get in the car, much different time. No seat belts or none of that stuff that you got to have now. Oh, yeah. We, we get about two miles up the road. We go around a curve and up a hill. And I was tired because I'd been with my dad all day. I leaned over on the door and the door came open. I fell out of the truck as it's moving at about 25 miles an hour. Ripped the skin off my arms, my face. I still had to have my ear fixed up. It was bad. Blood everywhere, near death, I thought. Uh, just a bad case of road rash that took months to get over. There's still, a, there's still a difference here at 46 years old this July in the pigment between my right arm and my left arm from having everything ripped off of me. That Saturday, I'm laid up on the couch watching wrestling, and they make the announcement, we will be back after this time out for words about the Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling events coming to your area. And they hit it with next Sunday afternoon, Dobbins been in high school, Jimmy Valiant against Joe LaDuke. And I knew this light bulb went off over my head. The old man feels so bad about what happened to me. He will not say no now. There you go. I, I like I like you as a kid already. <laughs> so right then, I tell my mom, I'm getting dad to take me to that because I know Valiant's going to win the Mid-Atlantic TV belt back. So dad comes in that afternoon. I asked him to go. We went. The match was in October. I wish I had it in front of me. The match was in October. I did not miss a wrestling event in the Tri-Cities until July of 87. Oh, After wow. going October of 82, the only reason I missed the July of 87 event in Johnson City for Crockett was because it was on Wednesday night or Thursday night, and that Saturday we were going to Charlotte to see the great American bash. So we did not go to the bash in Johnson city, but the first main event live I ever saw handsome, Jimmy, the boogie woogie man, Joe LaDuke with Oliver Humperdinck, Stu Schwartz, the referee. I can tell you to this day what they were wearing. Valiant had the yellow long tights on with the black boots and down his legs said, mercy daddy. 
He had the, the K&H warm-up jacket on that said Mercy on the back of it, the bandana. LaDuke was in the flannel shirt, the jeans, the lumberjack boots, and the green toboggan. Humperdinck was in the uh, uh, Hawaiian shirt. All three of them were bleeding buckets six minutes into this thing. It was the craziest, wildest fight that I had ever seen in my life. I did not go to see a scientific wrestling match. I did not go to see a work rate match, had no idea what that was then. I went to see a fight between two guys. I went to see gladiators fighting to the death, and they were. And Slaughter was on that card. Jim Nelson was on the card. I wish I had it in front of me. It was unreal. But the craziest memory of that, not just the main event, was when we walked into the Buck Van Hus Dome, which was Dobbins Bennett High School. And if you're thinking high school, forget it. This is an arena that the school runs. It's a 6,500-seat arena. So it's a big-time building. All the arenas in East Tennessee, other than the Knoxville Coliseum, are either owned by a college or a high school. So we walk in, and you could go down the bleachers to the floor, or you go up into the balcony right there. And I walk in on this rise, and I look, and there's the ring sitting in front of me. And I just stood there in awe of a wrestling ring. Nobody in it, no music playing, just the ring. I would have bought a ticket just to go look at the ring that day <laughs> to see it live and in person. And the only person on the card with music was Jimmy Valiant. They dimmed the lights and had the big lights over the ring. It was just everything that I still to this day love about wrestling. Yeah, I remember my first show just walking into the arena for the first time and it was, you know, it was already pretty full and just being like, you know, oh my God, I'm here. It, it was like a, a magical experience for me. It was, uh, I, I don't know, it was, it was insane, but it was December 10th, 1976 in North Attleboro, Massachusetts, Jack Witchie Sports Arena. I apologize, listeners, if I've told this story like too many times, but it's the truth. Reading the card from the main event backwards, uh, the executioners against Chief J. Strongbow and Billy White Wolf. Sean, you know this is my dream match. Oh, absolutely. Rocky Tamayo against S.D. Jones. By the way, the main event went to a double DQ. S.D. Jones pinned Rocky Tamayo. Next up. Kevin Sullivan against Gashouse Doug Gilbert, not Eddie Gilbert's brother, but this guy is kind of an old timer who's with the AWA. I told Kevin Sullivan, I'm like, hey, this is the first show. You know, you were on the first show I was ever at. And Kevin's from Massachusetts. He was all happy that, you know, he brought up witchies because, you know, it's long gone. And he told me that the reason Doug Gilbert's name was Gashouse is because he was the first wrestler that, according to Kevin, he was the first wrestler that everyone was 100% convinced was on steroids. And then the match, I get to see, the, I don't know, get to see is the right one, but I have the novelty, Bruiser Brody against Jose Gonzalez. So, And then there was one other match. It was Pete McKay against Frank Williams, and Pete McKay went over. Okay, mine is uh, February 11th, 1984. 36 years ago from oh, three days of this. Uh, yes, sir. Uh-huh. Oh, I didn't know that was your first ever show. Uh-huh. So, well, here's the funny story about this. When we got the tickets, this wasn't supposed to be a big deal. A couple things happened on the card that made it a big deal later. First of all, the main event was supposed to be Bob Backlund against the Sheik. Well, a funny thing happened on the way to the garden. In the time that we got the tickets to the time the event happened, Hogan won the belt. So Hogan is now there against the Sheik, and they also added Andre, who was not there when we got the original tickets. So now this is a big deal. Now, going by John's reaction, you, of course, know that this show is known for something else, which is why it is such a memorable. And really, I don't remember anything specifically from this show but this moment, which is... Don Morocco going into the corner on a tackle and getting rolled up by Tito Santana to win the belt. And it was the last match on the show. Yep. I, I just felt, I, I'm looking at it, T, I love Tito, but I was like, no, it's the last match. It's always the blow-off match, so you figure it's not happening there. You have the world title match, so there's no need for it. But damn. And it, was, it wasn't like a build-up. It just kind of happened out of nowhere. And it was like, what? And it was a great pop for it. We even have in a Texas death match, which is funny to have uh, Hogan and the Sheik in a Texas death match, but I, I'm sitting there ringing. I'm looking at the result. I'm ringing my head. I remember his entrance. 
and the place, of course, went nuts. But after that, I don't remember. I, I but I remember that finish for the Tito match. Well, let me say this. I'm blown away like by the idea of this being someone's first wrestling show because, as Sean stated, they announced that Bob Back- it was going to be Bob Backlund against Iron Sheik, but Bob is too injured to wrestle, so new WWF champion Hulk Hogan is going to take his place. And there were people outside. I mean, this show wasn't just sold out. There were people outside begging you to sell them your tickets. It was, it was, ca- it was chaos. God bless him. My dad was so miserable. This was supposed to be a nice, easy trip to the arena. This turns into like this this insane asylum. How hot was that building? It it always on TV looked like an oven. A million degrees. There was yeah. no air conditioning. They yeah. had no air conditioning. You would it would get to the point where the ice would start to condescend and would start coming up through the floor. Uh, you would see it in basketball games. Guys would slip on the stupid water. Meaning that the ice from the Boston Bruins game, which was yeah. underneath the parquet, yeah. would be like creating havoc. Right. I mean, that's how it would. You, I, I still remember seeing Kareem Abdul-Jabbar with the mask, with the oxygen mask during the 84 games. Yeah. I mean, one time we were there, this was 82, and we get there, and the sign, there was a, a sign with a bank, you know, with the time and the temperature, and the temperature read 107 degrees. Now, I knew it wasn't really 107 degrees, but I knew it was going to be unbelievably hot in that Boston Garden. I go in there, like the guys are all taking their shirts off, they're drunk, and now they're getting irritated because they're so hot. It was just an insane night. There must have been, I would say not 50 fights, maybe like 30, 40 fights, and Backlund was holding Jimmy Snuka in a headlock while they were both watching the fights. Oh, yeah, that's, I mean, God. If you're in the garden for too long of a time, especially once you get to like the summer, it gets, first of all, the smell. Beautiful. And second, oh my, I can't even, it get, it, there's not a word in the English language to describe it. The, uh, uh, the, the old rec center in Johnson City was that way, much smaller, 2,000 people seat probably. But in the summertime, it was so miserable in there. Oh my God. And I saw Jimmy Golden and Nick Bockwinkel go an hour Broadway, and it was the only time I think I ever wanted to see something end as a kid. Please, let's just go <laughs> home. Let's get out of here. I'm dying. Yeah. Oh, I mean, the, the old Boston Garden was, was, it was, you know, I have great memories of the place, but it was such a mess. I mean, if the Bruins went deep into the, the postseason, I mean, you know, the players would be playing on slushy ice because it was so damn hot in there. Yeah, it happened in the finals. They had like the power go out, the ice started melting, and yeah, in the 90 was, finals. That was 88 against the Oilers. 90. Yeah, 88 are one of those, so probably both. Anytime you got into the spring, this happened. You would have all kinds of, you know, because God forbid they put you know, air conditioning into the building. Well, I mean, the, it's supposedly the structure of the building prohibited it. And why do that? It's coming down. I, mean, I remember that. It yeah. was who the, owns the building? Oh, of course, the Bruins. This is the same guy yeah, who owns the, the Bruins. The cheapest team ever. Yeah. Yeah. Notorious cheapskate. And yeah, you know, I remember that day. I'm like, this is a national embarrassment. We need a new arena. Come on. Our, our, our heartwarming uh, memories of the garden. <laughs> nice tangent by, on, on everyone's part, but anyway. All right, next up, let's give, speaking of tangent, let's give Bo a little room here. From David uh, Wenick, most heated angle in uh, Southeastern Championship Wrestling. Yes. And my guess, I just throw this out there to start it, Bob turning heel, Bo? On the Alabama end, Bob Armstrong's heel turn on Ron Fuller, no doubt. On the Knoxville end, because you got to remember, Southeastern was two territories, Southern Division, Northern Division. On the Knoxville end, probably LaDuc and the Stomper because they almost killed Joe LaDuc on television legitimately, and people knew that, and it drew big money after that. But you also had Garvin and Fuller, Garvin and Wright. There were so many great runs in Knoxville, but probably the sledgehammer to LaDuc's head because it's still talked about so much today. One uh, question about the Alabama side, Bo. How big was when Charlie got slapped by Bob? Oh, it was huge. People were calling the station death threats. Called the building that night, de- death threats. How how dare he touch Charlie Platt? Wow. Yeah. Charlie was, he was to South Alabama and in the Gulf Coast. He was what Lance Russell was to Memphis. People really don't realize that because most of the continental stuff that's out there, Charlie's not on. And he came, but they replaced him with Gordon, 
because Charlie didn't want to go to Birmingham every week to do the TV. And there was no, no ill words between him and Fuller. He said, I'll still ring announce the towns here. I'll still cover it on my morning TV show, but I just, I don't want to go to Birmingham every week. I got to be up early in the morning on Tuesday to do my TV show. Makes perfect sense. And I am going to defer to Bo. He's, he's certainly a, a Southeastern expert amongst the three of us. And, and the most heated continental angle when they put the two territories back together, the most heated without a doubt was Robert Fuller turning on Bob in the cage and in the birth of the bullet. Okay. And this was 84? 85. Okay. July of 85. And uh, because Bob had to start wearing a mask because of problems he was having after the surgeries to his face after the accident in 84. Okay. Yeah, that was, I, I remember reading about that. They had Ted DiBiase go on Georgia TV. He was shooting with Bob in Atlanta and they're blaming Ted DiBiase on that accident when basically they didn't know if Bob was going to survive. Yeah. Not a good plan. <laughs> For those not familiar with the story, uh, I believe Bob was doing a bench press and the barbell slipped or fell or something and hit Bob in the face. The bench broke and he yep. fell backwards and the weight came straight down on his face and head. Oh, that's, and it was, that's and it was like a it was like a hundred pound barbell. And remember how much weight he had on on it. It was and Bob it, Armstrong is, is on a bench press. There's a lot of weight there. Yeah. Ronnie Garvin said, because Garvin was there, Garvin told me, I did not think he would live through the day. He said, we got him to the hospital, and then his, his head swelled, and his face, and he saw him, and he said, I, we did not think he was going to live. And later that year, he's back going Broadway with Ric Flair around Alabama and Florida. He wasn't even out a full year. Man. Uh, I remember hearing about that accident. Just, you know, from what I understand, it was the bar that came down in his face. Is that right, Bo? He had not the long bar. He had like the, you know, the dumbbells. doing okay. the press. So when he fell, it was like he went back and his hands came together and both of them came straight down on his face. Oh, that's gruesome. Uh, anyway, I, 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 once again, a Smoky Mountain trip, I got to meet Bar Armstrong, a true gentleman. I really enjoyed oh, it. Yeah. Spent like five minutes with us, and you know he had to go, but he was a really good guy. Do you have a uh, angle, uh, John? I don't. I'm going to defer to Bo, but by all means, talk about the one you want to talk about. Well, that was the one with that. The first one I thought of was uh, when Bob slapped Charlie Platt on the air, and I and I, did, was there something, Bo, where Charlie Platt's wife was pregnant at this time? He, she went into labor while they were taping the show. Oh my God! And he he had to leave, and they had to figure out a way to get him out of there. So they had Bob slap him, and then at the end of the program, they come back and announce Charlie Platt's a new daddy, which made it even worse that he's slapped around the day's kid is born. They finally had a, like the hospital had to ask the TV station to please stop calling everybody in the Platt family's fine. Yeah, I mean, that, like I said, that was the first thing that just jumped. Just the idea of the All American firefighter. All-American guy, Bob Armstrong. You know, even the name, uh, being a heel, it's just it's unthinkable in that area. It was a great heel. Oh, fan- oh fantastic. Oh, he was nasty. I, I, he, one of those guys where you look at it, you're like, I'm not sure he has it in him. And then when he does it, you're like, wow. It, it, it just- he, he created a woman to talk about during his interviews. Fannie Mae Tutwiler, who was this woman that told him what to do and said stuff to him. And he would talk about she was a little heavy and she was this and that. The fans started going to the matches trying to figure out who is this Fannie Mae Tutwiler. And one of the towns, they tried to attack a large older lady because they thought she was Fannie Mae. He never really got upset when he was a heel, did he? He was always no. very calm. Yeah. Which very is the calm. exact opposite from the way he normally was. Right. Which was even more unsettling. It was brilliant work by him. All right. Well. Uh, okay, so we'll go to Kevin Taylor next up. Um, any favorite rules or stipulations? That's part one. Uh, also, uh, provided you had to book the watch no top rope move rule in 1992, how would you book it for it to make sense and give it a satisfactory payoff? Well, wait. One of the best stories that Sandy Scott ever told me was they came to Johnson City. George and Sandy Scott come to defend the world belts against Ron and Don Wright. Ron and Don Wright are the local guys, the heels, and they send the finish to George and Sandy Scott. And the finish was, 
you're going to beat us two straight falls. They send back to the rights. We don't want to do that because you're here every week. Ron Wright finds his way to the babyface dressing room and explains how you're going to beat us two straight falls. You're going to out wrestle us in the first fall. You're going to pin one of us. In the second fall, you're going to out wrestle us. We're going to get the heat and we're going to get on you. As we're beating on one of you, double teaming, the other baby face comes in. The referee is pushing him out to get out of the ring, but he's still looking at the action behind. And Ron Wright came off the top rope, which was illegal in Tennessee until 1986, came off the top rope and dropped an elbow on the top of Sandy's head. And Sandy went down like it killed him because they knew it was illegal to jump off the top rope for wrestlers safety. It was not safe for a 250 pound man to jump in the air and land on you. He could hurt you bad. So he hit Sandy. Sandy's knocked out. They then double team George Scott, leave him laying and then fight their way to the dressing room. They lost two falls straight, but still left with more heat than they went to the ring with. That is a cool story. That's how you book it. You can't have a rule unless somebody's going to break the rule. That's how you get your heat. You have to break the rules. You have to educate the fans to what the rules are. Favorite stipulation, favorite. Here's something, and I don't know if this was done everywhere else in the country. I would imagine it was. But it was still this way in the South when I was a kid. And it's totally lost in time, and it was totally lost by the mid-'80s. If John and Sean are wrestling each other and the bell rings and they say the time limit is run out, automatically right now, wrestling fans go, it's a draw. When I was a kid in Tennessee, the referee had to make a decision. Who was control of the match the most during the time Then he chose a winner, like a points in a boxing match? Most of the time, he would pick the baby face. Sometimes he would say, it's too close to call, so it's a draw. So you didn't have that, you know, what, what's the old saying? The tie is like kissing your sister. You didn't have that. You still had the time limit, so you got the time in the house, but you still had a winner to advance. Believe they, it or not, the old WWF did that, like mid to late 70s. Like a lot of the time it would be a draw, but sometimes the referee would just declare the baby face the winner. I'd never seen the, the ref declare the heel winner, but a couple of times I saw him do it with the baby face. Most of the time it was a draw. Yeah, but that makes it sensible because you have to have something to fight for. And you can come right back next week. John can go on TV and say, you know what? He didn't beat me. The referee made a decision, but he never pinned me. So this week, we're coming back to Johnson City, and I want five extra minutes. And, and you, you've got to return. Good booking right there. I once heard uh, Dory Funk, I, I didn't hear him, I read about Dory Funk Sr. When he was booking, he would say that, um, okay, if we go to a 60-minute draw and we have, okay, next time we're coming out, it's going to be a 90-minute time limit. Dory would say, well, there's no way we can just go 60 minutes. And I disagree with that. I think, you know, there's no reason why, hey, it's a completely different match. These guys have different strategies. It can be over in 20. But that was Dory Funk Sr.'s philosophy. And a lot of them, like the famous match where Jimmy Valiant hits the ring and hits, hits Lawler with the bottle and cuts him, most people don't realize that match was the week after Lawler and Race won an hour. The I didn't hour, know that. Yeah, and they came back that week, 90 minutes. And they had the match go 45 or 50 minutes to make people think they're going to go the whole hour and a half. And then Lawler gets the deal where he has him beat. They're like, they're not going the hour. He's winning. Then there's Valiant for the heat. Valiant had been gone for two or three weeks, and they had to kickstart them back. So they went in a total different direction with Lawler and Race, and then you're right back to Valiant and Lawler. That makes perfect sense. Now, okay, so my favorite stipulation match, and then what do I do about Watts? Is that right, Sean? Yep. Okay, my favorite stipulation match has always been the street fight. The guys come dressed as they are. 
and they're out there to settle whatever score they have against each other. And it was always like, you know, the street clothes slowed him down a little bit, but it was always very bloody, very violent. And it was the match where, I mean, sure, you can book a screw job finish, but most of the time you get a decisive finish. As far as Watts banning like moves off the top rope, I think he was trying to turn back time and you just can't do it. Like, I understand philosophically what he was trying to do. As Bo stated, it's it's a heat spot. But you can't have your program having this, oh, my God, if someone jumps off the top rope, someone will get killed. When, A, you've been doing it, that promotion had been doing it on WTBS for six years. And number two, the guys on the other channel are doing it, and everyone turns out okay when someone comes off the top rope. I just, I I got what he was trying to do, but that's why you couldn't do it. You can't do it. It's that simple. Mine is, I'm about to kind of expand on your thing about Watts. I have a bit about that, but uh, real quick, my favorite stip match, uh, and I don't know why the WWF didn't steal this, because this seems perfect for them. They steal everything else and turn it into a no DQ match. Texas Deathmatch, no DQ match. Everything's a no DQ match, and this would have been a lights-out match in Florida. The way it worked was that if a situation got out of hand, you would have a non-sanctioned lights-out match. The card would conclude, and then they would turn down the lights for a minute, and then they would turn them back up again. This is the signal that the next match is not sanctioned. You can still have the same no DQ match, but it just kind of gives it an extra feeling of drama to it, the way they do it. You know, the ref would have to wear a different outfit. And yeah, it just, it seems like something that's perfect for the WWF, but for some reason they never took it. I've got to tell you a lights out match story. Hey, go right. Boris Malenko and Ronnie Garvin and Izzy Slapowitz's with Malenko for Poffo's ICW in Greenville, Tennessee. The local promoter was a guy named Roy Roberts who promoted what was called Outlaws back then, but Independence as they're called now. And that was the main event, Malenko Garvin, lights out, blah, blah, blah. So they have the card. They turn the lights out, turn them back on there. And Roy Roberts comes from the concession stand, and he grabs the microphone, and he starts yelling. I don't know what's going on here, but I promised these people a lights out match, and that's what's going to happen. You turn the lights out right now. He thought they were going to wrestle in the dark. <laughs> he made them turn the lights out in the Eastview Rec Center in Greenville, Tennessee, so they could have this lights out match. And for like five or six minutes, Garvin and Malenko would just make noise and stomp the mat. Izzy was sitting on the apron of the mat. It was pitch black. There's no cell phones in to turn lights on. It's, I mean, it's pitch, pitch black. And then finally, the referee makes a three count and they turn the lights on Garvin standing up and Malenko's laying on the ground. That's too crazy. Surprised Garvin just didn't go over and strangle the guy and say, <laughs> look, this is what this is. Knock it off. Just knowing the personality of Garvin. I heard the story before I really knew Garvin and I asked him about it one time in the car and he started laughing just like you did. And he said, that was the easiest money I ever made in my <laughs> life. <laughs> That's- he said, I, he said, I didn't even have to take a shower. I didn't. I just changed and got in the car and went home. That's fantastic. <laughs> and just so everyone knows the significance of the lights out match, you turn the lights out and the show is over and the matches coming up is not part technically of the show. So the promotion isn't going to get in trouble for whatever these two guys decide to do to each other. So I, I love the concept and I kind of miss it, but I understand why it's gone. Well, it's kind of hard to do it today, but I mean, back in the day, I'm surprised WWF didn't use that. As far as the Watts rule, the problem was that he walked in and basically like there's a new sheriff in town. What they should have done if you're going to book that, and this is a beautiful opportunity to kind of tone it down a little bit and protect the safety of your own wrestlers, is that you have a couple stars who need a break, have them get injured on top rope moves, kayfabe, get them out, and then all of a sudden you have a reason to have a rule saying we have to protect our guys. And what made it even crazier, you can't jump off the top rope for safety, but we're going to take the mats off the floor. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was like, if some, it's like now, if the NFL says we're going back where you cannot make a forward pass. 
Yeah, I remember Watts explaining that, well, there are dangers of having mats outside the ring. Like, you could turn your ankle. It's like, come on, dude. If you give a wrestling fan a logical explanation for why you're doing something, it'll work. But there was no rhyme or reason why he was doing any of this stuff. If they just educated the fans that, oh, these moves are dangerous, that's why we're taking them away, then take them away, and then you can build an angle out of how dangerous those moves are, that's how you book correctly. Okay, but please hear me out on this. If Bill Watts was used to the idea of he would have one television show on in each city, and it was his television show, so he controlled everything you saw in that theater of pro wrestling. That was no longer the case. There were multiple shows from multiple promotions, and if guys are coming off the top rope in the WWF and no one's getting hurt, why all of a sudden is everyone in WCW getting hurt, especially since they've been doing it for six years? There was just no way. Oh, it still may not have worked, but, I mean, it's certainly not going to work the way he did it. No. I mean, Bill was, you know, I was, you know, for years, I wanted Bill Watts to come to WCW and take it over and make it just like Mid-South Wrestling. I'm talking until they hired him. And then after they hired him, I was on the phone with Dave Meltzer and Dave said he has not watched a moment of wrestling in five years. And Dave was like, this guy is stuck in the past. And he was. Well, we were just having too much fun to (laughs) cut this off at an hour, and we did not. We're going to stop here on the first half of the conversation we're having with Bo James, and we're going to do the second part of it next week. So tune in for that. I want to thank Bo for being an excellent guest. We're having a really good time tonight. Uh, I want to thank Sean Goodwin for being the most convivial co-host out there. I want to thank Lou Kippelman for all the work he does as our producer. Believe me, he has a lot to do with this. If you like this show, you like Lou. And this has been a presentation of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Go Vols. (laughs) 